Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. Let's get started. Well, this morning we're continuing our series on gifts that God gives. Gifts that God gives. It's Christmas. We give gifts. And I think one of the important things that we can say to our family is we give gifts because we've received the greatest gift. That God gave his son Jesus on that first Christmas. That's why we're giving gifts. And God loves to give gifts. God is incurably generous. It's very, very interesting. In James 1.5, and I don't have it just floating around in my mind this morning. Uh, James 1.5, it says, if anyone lacks, lacks wisdom, he should ask, and this is what it says in the Greek, the giving God. Yeah. Yeah. And what will he get? Generously, he'll receive wisdom. Okay, uh, this is uh, Pastor John Lindell that you're listening to. And uh, I won't interrupt too often on this one. This is a fairly short sermon, about 35 minutes. I've, uh, I'll reserve most of my comments for the end of this. So sit back and enjoy. Uh, consider this my first interruption, though. Um, the passage in James <clears throat> about uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, uh, let, him, let him pray, and um, God will give him wisdom generously. If there is is a more falsifiable prayer claim in the Bible. I would really like to know what it is. <laughs> because this one, this one seems to be um, no wiggle room. This is a prayer claim and we can falsify it because all we have to do is look at all of the unwise people in churches who have prayed for wisdom. And let's face it, almost every Christian has prayed for wisdom. When, uh, whenever this passage comes up, uh, whether it's in Bible studies or if a person is preaching through the Bible, this is an easy one to pray for. Uh, they pray for it uh, in public sermons, uh, public sermons, public prayers all the time. Lord, give us wisdom. And so it seems like you should be able to track the number of fools in churches who have prayed for wisdom and are yet unwise, continue to do unwise things. They are, uh, they have no evidence of wisdom whatsoever. And yet it says God not only gives wisdom, but he gives it generously. It should be apparent the, uh, the great gifts of wisdom that he gives, except the only thing that's really apparent is the lack of wisdom that seems to be given. I can tell you from my own experience, I prayed for wisdom all the time. I took this passage seriously. Now, if there's one prayer that should have been answered for me, it should have been the grant of wisdom. I wasn't praying for sports cars. I wasn't praying for money. I was praying for wisdom. This is a prayer that God should want to give. So what happened? I ended up leaving Christianity. Now, was that an answer to the prayer for wisdom? I don't think Christians would say so. They would say that I, I was a fool. So if I was a fool, God clearly didn't answer my prayer for wisdom. Is, is there a way out of this? Uh, there really isn't. Although, uh, as you listen to this sermon, you will hear uh, the thing that I have said many times about prayer and uh, Christianity, especially preaching. Uh, 
in Christianity, the preaching of prayer is the exercise of explaining why God didn't answer yours. So listen out. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've still got this thing going. I've got a mild cold. Um, listen out for those cues as John Lindell explains to you why your prayer is not being answered. And he talks about something else that I'm uh, that I'm going to have a few comments at the end. So for now, let's see what else John Lindell has to say. So when you ask the giving God, the giving God gives generously. And we've seen that, haven't we? As we've been making our way through this series, we, we saw first of all that God wants to give the gift of forgiveness. And how generous was he? Very generous. He sent his son Jesus to forgive us of our sin. And we looked at John chapter 8 because this entire series is coming out of John's gospel. Then last week, we looked at the gift of another chance, not just a second chance, because most of us need more than a second chance. We need a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. We need lots of chances. He's the God of another chance, and he's generous. When we read the story of Peter in John 21, think of it, less than 20 days after that interaction with Jesus, Peter will preach and 3,000 people will get saved. That's a generous God, right? And now, this morning, we're gonna look at a third gift God loves to give, the gift of healing. God loves to heal his people. Okay. I'm sorry, just on his last point, uh, Peter preaches his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. About 3,000 men were uh, believed and were baptized. Uh, so uh, you can you can read that story, but he's telling it as if the response was a generous gift of God. I know that Christians believe that to respond to the gospel, you have to first be gifted with the gift of faith to respond. I get that. And 3,000, <coughs> it seems like a lot. I mean, it seems like a lot. Is that everybody that was in uh, attendance? I don't think this is a historical event at all, but um, that's fine. It, is that everyone in attendance? And if this is a gift of God, then why not 4,000? Why not 5,000? Why not 10,000? Why leave anyone not believing? if this is a, a matter of your generosity. At any rate, he's going to spend the bulk of his time talking about healing. Here we go. You know what's interesting is he so loves to heal his people that one of his names is, I am the Lord who heals thee, Jehovah Rapha, the healing God. He's the God who loves to heal. He so identifies with healing that he calls himself the healing God. And as we come to John chapter 4, we see the story of a man who desperately needed to see God's healing power in his situation. Let's begin reading at verse 46. So he, that's Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Now what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this story and we're going to think about the healing this man received and some of the things that contributed to it in terms of his own response of faith. And then we've rearranged the service because what we want to do is at the end of the message, not the end of the service, we're going to pray for people to be healed and we're believing God's going to touch, touch hundreds and thousands of people who are prayed for this morning at all of the campuses. In fact, very exciting in the other service to watch all of the people being prayed for and to think what God is doing. So I want to give you just a few quick principles as we look at this, and then we're going to allow people to be prayed for and be in the presence of the Lord. The first okay, uh, before he goes into his quick principles, is there anywhere on the internet, um, video, in writing, uh, some testimonials in the newspaper, uh, they've got thousands of people who are going to be healed <coughs> over their multiple campuses. So I'm just wondering if there is any record of uh, this mass healing taking, taking place. Uh, anyone talking about the healing that they got um, from this healing? I mean, this, is, this seems like a fairly newsworthy event. Anybody? Is that anywhere? Any, anybody? First one I want you to see is this. Go to God with your problems, but go to God for more than your problems. You see, so many people just see God as some problem solver, and, and they just want God to give them a solution. They just aren't so worried about salvation. They want God to work in their life, but they're not as interested. They want him to work in their problem. They're just not as interested in God working to develop them as a person who knows God more. But what God wants and what you see in this, in this miracle is, yes, God wants to help us in our problems. Settle that in your mind. But God wants to do more than that. God wants to meet your need, and then God wants to grow your character. God wants to meet your need. God wants to deepen your understanding. God wants to meet your need, but God wants you to be stronger in Christ, more faith-filled in Christ, more zealous for Christ. God wants you to take what you've received and give it to others. So God wants to do a work in your problem, but he wants to do a work in you. So when we look at this, it's interesting. We pick it up in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he'd done down in Jerusalem. So they'd been down in Jerusalem. They'd been there for the feast. They'd watched Jesus do some miracles there. When they saw the miracles there, they were like, wow, we hope our friends and relatives get to see his miracles up here in Galilee. We hope that we get to see his miracles because it's really pretty amazing what this guy can do. Look at it in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Remember, that's the first of his miracles. 
And so he's there in Cana and at Capernaum. Capernaum is where Peter's from. Capernaum is where Jesus will live during his ministry. Capernaum is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Cana is 18 miles away. So from Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. That word official, basilikos. The root of that word is king. So he's an official of the king. He works for Herod Antipas, the Herod who talked to Jesus when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, that Herod. So he works there. He's a man that tells us he's a powerful individual, probably a wealthy individual, probably a very influential individual, but all the power, all the influence, and all the wealth is a whole lot less important right now to this man than the condition of his son. Because he's got a son who is sick. How sick is he? Well, we get an idea in the next verse, verse 47. He was at the point of death. This is a real concern for this dad. Because scholars tell us in that day, 50% of children died before the age of five. His son is at the point of death, and the official is going to say to Jesus, come down before my child dies. So now the official understands that his son is facing death. He makes the 18 to 20 mile journey. You have to believe he's moving as fast as he can possibly go to get to Jesus because he needs a miracle from Jesus. It says in verse 47, he asked, he asked him to come down. It's not just, it's, it's, it's in a tense that says it was ongoing. It was repeated. Jesus, I really need you to come. Jesus, my son is dying. Can you please come? Jesus, I know you got a lot going on, but I need your help. People have told me that you have healing power. I need you to come to my son. Look at it in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Here's Jesus' response. My son's sick, my son's dying, and I need you to come. And here's what Jesus says. Unless you see miracles, you guys don't even believe. You're like, time out. That's not the Jesus I know. That's rude. That's unkind. That's uncaring. Actually, we're uh, doing a study uh, over in Red Letters right now. Yeah, you can... You can uh, visit us, patreon.com slash red letters. Become a patron. Pick up my uh, book, Red Letters, uh, the, A Closer Look at the Worst Practical and Moral Teachings in History for free. Uh, and uh, join in on that. <clears throat> the reason I interrupted at that point was not for that commercial break. Um, it was to suggest, actually, Jesus is rude and that is exactly the Jesus we've come to know. It's not. It's a, it's a common it response is. of Jesus in the Gospels. Remember the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is demonized and she's begging and begging and Jesus says, listen, I was sent to the house of Israel. And she says, listen, I still need you to come. He said, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she's like, huh? But you know what? Even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. I mean, she is undeterred. Right. She's undeterred because she's desperate, but Jesus is still rude. 
She is not bothered by that inner change. By the way, the dogs in this case would be a racial epithet. Should I use a different one so that you understand the severity of that? It would be like saying it is not right to give my gifts to the Nick. Too many times people are too easily offended by the gospel and it keeps them from receiving the miracle that God wants to do in their life because God cares about your need, but God cares about more than your need. He cares about you. He cares about the people around you. He cares about his work in you. I mean, if this troubles you, remember back in John chapter two, what he said to his own mother, watch this. When the, they're at this wedding feast, we assume that it may have been one of Jesus' sisters getting married, which means it's a very personal thing. They're out of wine. That's a social faux pas. It will, it will be, the wedding will be remembered because they ran out of wine, not because it was a wedding. Bad deal. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Here's Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't recommend you try that with your mother. Could go, it could go really bad for you at Christmas. What's happening here is he's saying to Mary, this is the start of his ministry. This is the first miracle. He's saying, Mary, you need to understand something. I'm no longer operating as the son of Mary and Joseph. I am now operating as the son of God. Why do we keep apologizing for Jesus' bad behavior? And there's a difference. I've got to fulfill my mission. Was Mary taken back? Was Mary, is the next verse going to say, don't you dare, you talk to me like that again. You'll be picking your teeth up off the, I mean, does Mary, she doesn't do any of that. Watch what she says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know what, you know what she sees? In his no, she sees a yes. Well, isn't it a little bit creepy to uh, hear a, preacher telling the audience that uh, no means yes. I, I want to suggest to you, this is the essence of faith, that in the no, you see a yes, that, that sometimes people come forward, they're prayed for, and when they don't receive, they think it's not ever going to happen. They see the delays of God as being tantamount to a denial by God, and that's just simply not true. So here, here, Mary is seeing a no in his yes, and Jesus is, he's trying to draw out of this man, and not only this man, but the whole crowd, a response of faith that will allow them to see the greater work that he wants to do in their lives. In fact, you get a sense of this because Jesus said to him, unless you, that you is plural. He's, not, he's, he's saying, unless you all, unless all of you, He's calling them all to a greater faith. It's the second principle I want you to notice here. Believe God's word, not your worries. Believe God's word. You know, because listen, especially when you're ill, especially when it affects your health, especially when that, maybe like the story we showed on the video of Ali, it affects your income, your livelihood, your future, your security. What happens is there can be bound up in the physical 
illness a worry about your future. And people can find themselves believing God's word or believing their worries more than God's word. Look at it in verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Here's what he's saying. This official has figured out in his mind what he wants Jesus to do, and he has it all planned out. Jesus, what I need you to do, I need you to get down to Capernaum quick. I don't know what else you got going on, but I need you to do this. And then see, when you get there, I'm going to take you to the house, and then you're going to put your hand on my son's head. You're going going to speak the words, you're going to pray the prayer, however it is. But the guy has it all planned out in his mind. And we get that, don't we? We face a problem and we think, God, I need you to help me with this. I need you to do this with this person. And then you could do this over here. And then you could help me do this. And then you could just generally do that. And then we have all these plans, all these anticipations or we come into the altar to receive healing and we're, we're expecting it's going to go a certain way, feel a certain way that certain things are going to happen. And we have this preconceived idea. Watch what happens here. He says, he says, Jesus, come down. Because to the ancients, in order for healing to take place, the shaman or the healer or the prophet needed to be there. Remember, Elijah had to personally go to raise the, the boy from the dead. He couldn't just say the word. He had to go there. That's Remember Naaman, the story of Naaman in, in 2 Kings. He was a, a Syrian who had leprosy, and he comes to Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even go outside to see him. He just sends the servant out and says, tell him to go take a, a dip in the Jordan River. And, and Naaman is mad because he's like, I thought he'd come out and talk to me. I thought he would, you know, you know, throw some dust and feathers in the air, say a magic incantation, and I, but he didn't do any of that, so how can it happen? You know what's happening here? God speaks and it happens. Jesus on this first of many miracles is wanting to establish something in people's minds. He's God. He speaks and it happens. He says it, and it takes place. He doesn't have to have proximity to the person in the natural because he's the God of the supernatural. He can say it, and it becomes a reality. This is God. This is what he's trying to show him. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm paying attention. And uh, a sign that it is God is that he can just say it. He doesn't require proximity. He, he says it in the natural, uh, and he's the God of the supernatural. Okay, got it. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus, uh, you know, the Jesus friend, his, his uh, BFF. And um, was it Martha, his sister, sent for Jesus? Uh, come because, you know, my brother's dying. And Jesus could have just said it. But he didn't say it. And in that story, he required proximity. He had to actually go to Lazarus. <laughs> And then, of course, he was four days dead by the time he got there. But he had to get there. 
But of course, one of the excuses for him taking so long and delaying was to show the power of God. But here, the power of God is better shown with him not going there. I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I, I. But instantly this man faces a real dilemma. Is he going to be more committed to the word that Jesus has spoken or to his own preconceived ideas of how Jesus should work? Is he going to give in? Is he going to believe the word or is he going to give in to his worries? Jesus is not going to make the 18-mile journey to Capernaum. Can I just suggest this where a lot of people miss out with God? They, they're more committed to their own preconceived ideas of the way God should work, and when he doesn't, then they're out. Well, I came forward, and I didn't get healed. So how about you come again? Well, I don't think that's, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. Well, I thought, well, it doesn't matter what you thought. Well, I would like, doesn't really matter what you like, because it's not really about you and me, although God is gracious to work in you and me, right? And I'm not being unkind, and I'm not being harsh or uncaring. I'm just simply saying that in God's work, in this world, in this church, and in our lives, it's about much more than us, though he works in us and through us. We just simply have to learn to accept that his will, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the issue here for this man. And at some point, you got to be more convinced about the truth of the Word of God than you are about your worries. At some point, what you have to do if you're going to walk by faith is you got to doubt your doubts. What does that mean? Will someone please give me an explanation of what you mean by doubting your doubts? I've heard other Christian apologists say this, and it didn't make any sense then either. Thanks and believe your God's going to help you. Look at it in verses 50 through 53. Give me the next slide if you could. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Here's what's interesting. He's never seen anybody healed. All he's ever heard is that Jesus does heal. But having met Jesus, he says, I take you at your word. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said yesterday at the seventh hour. This is very interesting. Seventh hour would be one o'clock in the afternoon. Yesterday. It takes about four and a half hours, maybe five hours, by donkey to travel 18 to 20 miles. Now, if you had a child who was near death, and there was a great healing crusade in Kansas City, and you went there to the crusade, and you got the word your child was going to live. Go, your child's going to live. What would you do? Most people, if their child was near death, would hoof it back here to see what happened. This man doesn't do that. This man goes about his business confident that what Jesus said is true. It's very, very interesting. He doesn't go back till the next day. He has confidence. He says, yesterday at the seventh hour, this is what the servants say, the fever left him and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Let me give you a third principle. 
Make your faith a family priority. Make your faith a family priority. Look at it in verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. He believed, and then guess what? All of his household. Why did they believe? Because he believed. Why did they believe? Because he told them about Jesus. Why did they believe? Because he said, this is what Jesus has done in me. Why did they believe? Because they saw what Jesus had done in him, and as a result, Jesus did something in them. Can I just say, parents, that's the way it works? Let God work in you, and let it be obvious to your children. Let them hear you pray. Let them hear you speak faith. Let them hear you love the word of God. Let them hear you love the church. Let them hear you indoctrinate them. Let, oh, wait a minute. Sorry, I got caught up. Sorry about that. Let them hear you love the things of God, that your life is centered on that. Let faith live in you, and you'll see faith live in your family. This man knew that the important thing was that now that God had worked in him, God needed to work in his family. It's so, so true. Moms and dads, pass the faith that's in you down to your children. All right, so I'm confused. Do we pass our faith down to our children so that our children, uh, the children have their, their parents' faith? Or is that a bad thing? And do we need to allow children to develop their own faith? because it depends on what set of apologists you're talking to. So I, I, I kind of thought that uh, your children just walking around with your faith or some version of your faith was out of favor. Apparently not. Let me give you one more principle. Very simple principle. When you need healing, go to Jesus. Now ask musicians to come right now. When you need healing, go to Jesus. In this service, what we're going to do, and I realize that at any of our campuses and even online, there's a number of people who maybe have seen us have prayer for the sick. Every single Sunday we do it, all things being equal. Regular Sunday, we're going to pray for the sick. People come down here. They have little bottles of olive oil. They anoint people with oil. Pray for them. Why do they do that? James chapter 5, look at it. If any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Just curious for those who say that uh, we biblical literalists are wrong. Is he, is he wrong for taking that passage literally because their elders, you know, walk around with little bottles of olive oil anointing people because that's literally what the verse says? Uh, is, that, is that a good use of literal reading or a bad use of literal reading? I, I can't tell. Also, do we have any statistics uh, for the success of healing for those uh, people who did their healing with olive oil and those who did their healing without olive oil? <laughs> if there are any surveys, I'd like to know. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. How does that happen? The Lord will raise him up. 
Who raises him up? It's not the people. Sometimes we get caught up in who's doing the praying down front. It's not the people down front, bless their heart for their faithfulness, though some may have the gift of healing. The issue for you is, do you have the faith to believe God's word and believe that the Lord himself, it's the Lord who raises people up as they come forward in faith and are anointed. I've wanted to talk about this for a while because I just so believe in this particular practice of the church, of the New Testament church, of James River as a church. Anywhere I see it, I applaud it because I think it is such a valuable part of our time in the presence of the Lord. And yet, what my observation has been is that a lot of people come once and don't come again and then wonder why they don't receive. Or they come once and when they didn't receive, they think they're not ever going to receive and that's not true either. I'll illustrate it with my own story, my own journey. And if you've heard the story, you'll, you'll pardon me, but it's very real to me right now. And I think it speaks to the, to the point of what this next part of the service is about. About a year and a half ago, we were leading a tour, a Journey of Paul tour uh, in Rome at the Vatican and got a pulmonary embolism clot to the brain. I'm sitting in the hospital, I'm, you know, laying in an ER room at uh, San Giovanni Hospital in Rome and, and uh, we, we get home. I talked to a doctor here because you can't get the films. It's a little complicated. Doctor says, listen, if you have had that, um, what you need, he said, you know, you, you, you all prayed on that Wednesday night, which was, I think, very significant for me. But we got home, the doctor says, you need a couple months rest. You know our story, you know that within a month, Debbie had fallen and taken a fall and shattered her pelvis. And so the rest thing kind of went out the window because it was my joy and honor to care for her, but that needed to happen. And then the, we got into August and September, it was very busy, but as that was happening, it was happening as I was getting weaker and sicker, literally by the week. So that by the end of September, I'm down to, I'm in the 150s, mid 150s and have lost a lot of weight. Um, Debbie's watching me. She's saying, you know what? You, you, look, um, you look like an 80-year-old man, the way you're sitting, the way you act, she, she, you know, which is fine if you're 80, but when you're, when you're not, that's not so good. She's worried about me. The board's saying, go to Mayo Clinic. We, we, we'll send you there. We'll do whatever we have to do to get you to look down. I said, you know, let me just take rest because we haven't had any rest. So we get away. We're in Arizona. We're in Florida. And I'm in bed the whole time. I'm outside, essentially outside the days we traveled or the one day we went to the Grand Canyon. I'm, I'm bedridden. I get up. I eat. I'm back in bed the whole day. Eat later in the day. I'm in bed all the time. We get back. I'm still, you know, my, you know I'm trying to, trying to preach. Uh, there's tremendous exhaustion attached to it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm in bed much of the time. The board knows this. So they're, they, I'm feeling bad. They're saying, just get better. Um, we go to Mayo Clinic in February and Mayo Clinic uh, diagnoses it. It's a, it's a condition. One of the doctors on our board suspected it. Uh, Mayo said it's rare, but people get it. 
Um, it's in the autonomic system so that your blood vessels don't get the blood pushed up to your heart. Your heart begins to go into a racing mode and 200 plus beats a minute. And then, you know, you're just horribly exhausted even more so after that. The upshot is Mayo said, you know, there's no cure for this. So um, there's no medicine. We can give you medicine. It'll make you honestly feel worse. I said, well, what's the outcome? What's the prognosis? The doctor said, you know, a third of the people take permanent disability. She said, the other two thirds, it's everything from they just gutted out. Life's just very hard for them to some experience moderate recovery. Uh, a few get a full recovery. Um, but he said, I can tell you this, unless you push yourself, you're never going to get better. I, I just... I'm stopping this very poignant story at an awkward moment to highlight that one of the options, one of the things that happens with this illness is that some get a full recovery. How, how do we gloss over that? Um, we can't gloss over that. So I come home in that first week, uh, you know, I try to walk around our block. I have to sit down three times to make it around the block and rest. Uh, somebody says to me, have you had the elders pray for you? I was like, well, yeah, I've had the board pray for me and the pastoral staff has prayed for me at different times. Well, no, you're going forward and having people pray for you. I said, well, you know, I don't want to worry people. Don't want to, you know, all the reasons people give. But I walked away from that conversation very, very convicted. And I thought, you know, what's the deal, man? Come on, I, I mean, I'm here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start going. So I'm going to go. And the good news for me is I'm in three services on Sunday. I go three times. <laughs> so that's what I purpose to do. I'm going to go forward and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be prayed for. And so every, every week I wait till it kind of lets up a little bit. And when there's an opening, I jet in and get, get prayed for. And nothing's happening, but I'm still going to get prayed for. I can say this in my mind. My mindset was, one of these days, God's going to heal me. That's really kind of how I thought, but it hadn't happened. We get down to the, to the summer, and, and um, essentially, the way my life is playing out is I get done on Sunday, I go, I go home, and I go right to bed. I'm in bed through the rest of the day. Monday, I'm in bed much of the day. I'm, I'm sleeping, I'm sleeping 14, 15 hours. I mean, it's crazy the amount of sleep I'm, I'm sleeping. Tuesday I get up, I'm, I'm in bed for part of the morning, and then I'm here at the office, and I'm laying on the couch in the afternoon doing my appointments laying on the couch. So that's kind of the way my, my life plays. Again, the board knows that I'm saying this isn't good. They're saying, hey, you know, we, we just need to keep praying. Uh, you know, we're all going to be fine. We, wanna, we want you to stay with it. So we go, to, we go away in, in June. And when we go away in June, uh, Debbie and I talk about it. I say, you know, when I get back in July, I'm going to push it. I can't live like this. I can't, I can't live pastoring the church laying down. I'm, I'm going to push it. I'm going to go back to my old schedule. And, I, and we do that through July, and it's a disaster. I mean, by this now, I'm, my heart's racing four times a week, which any time it does, it's a bad deal. Before, it was maybe every 10 days. Now, I'm regular schedule. And, um, and so Debbie and I are talking about retiring because we're saying, I, I said, I don't want to—I I just can't do this. Um, it's not fair to the church if I'm resting, can't go full steam. I just need to retire. 
So that's what we're thinking. But then we have the fast, more than you can ask or imagine. It's a good name for fast, isn't it? So what's happening is I'm so often having, even on Sundays at times, I'm behind the curtain. When Robert Medu's here, I'm behind the curtain laying on the floor because my heart's racing. And um, so I've, I'm afraid it's gonna happen on a Sunday. So I figure I better tell the people at a Wednesday night prayer meeting and that way the Wednesday night prayer meeting people, if it happens on a Sunday, can lean to the people who are just, you know, here on Sunday morning and say, he's okay, he's, he'd be fine. <laughs> Don't mind him, he's laying down. Um, so anyway, I say, I wanna tell you this is my condition and I need you to pray for me. We're fasting, let's believe God. So we had Kurt Parsley come up and, and the congregation prayed and, and anointed me. And honestly, I didn't feel anything except exceptionally loved by you. And that meant a lot. So we go home, somebody asked me, I can remember walking out the parking lot, do you think God healed you tonight? I said, I don't know, but I'm believing he did. You know, I don't know, I am not feeling anything, but I'm believing he did. So we, we go home and over the next few weeks, what happens is I'm not letting up in my schedule my heart never races again, not ever. Just so awesome. But there is still this fatigue. There's still a, a, a considerable amount of fatigue. So I'm still going home after church, going to bed, that whole deal. And on Sundays, there, there's an accompanying brain fog that you would get. So on Saturday, I could study, and at the end of the day, not really remember what I'd studied. I'd have to write everything down and have to have it up. It was really glued to the iPad because there were times I couldn't remember what was next, even as I was preaching. So on a, about four weeks later, Sunday morning, I'm feeling really, really rough. And um, I go forward, and I'm... They pray for me, and as soon as they touched me, the presence of God swept over me from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. I could just feel the presence of God just like moving over me. I went back to the seat. Debbie happened to be in that service. I said, I believe God's healed me. And I got up. I, I spoke that afternoon. Debbie said, are you going to lay down when we got home? Are you going to lay down? I said, no, I, th I think I'm going to, you know, I, I didn't feel like I wanted to or needed to. And what's happened is, since that time, you know, uh, which would have been back in September, I put on 20 pounds. You know, I'm 30 pounds heavier than I was a year ago. But it's just like God touched me and healed me. You know, here was my mindset. And I, I say this because some of you, you quit on the first time out, and that's a mistake. In, in Luke chapter 18, and the Lord said, this is the story of the widow and the unjust judge. Jesus tells the story about this widow who's, who needs help, and she keeps going to this judge, and he's not, he's, not, he's not lifting a finger to help her. But she keeps on going, she keeps on going, she keeps on going. And finally, the judge says this. He said, I don't care about God, and I don't care about men, but this lady is driving me nuts. I'm going to help her to get her out of my life. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. I mean, if a wicked unjust judge says, she keeps coming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of it. Will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who watch us, who will cry out to him day and night? 
You know, when you keep coming and you keep coming and you keep coming, anybody who knows anything about prayer knows that there is what, what I would call an accumulating weight of prayer. Okay, I'm just going to pause right there and um, unload a few of my comments right now. We're actually almost done, but I just don't want this moment to get too far past. Uh, this accumulating weight of prayer uh, thing that he's talking about, isn't that a little weird? Um, because you have to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And um, God, it, I always thought it was weird, even as a Christian, that God um, would compare himself to an unjust judge who wouldn't be bothered to do the right thing unless the woman nagged all the time to get it done. Is, is that really what God is like? That I mean, he could do the thing that you want at any time, and he's already decided that he wants to do it, but he wants you to nag and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. At what point is it okay for you to say, well, this isn't working? Or, or maybe just to evaluate yourself and say, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I am uh, displeasing to God in some way. There is no way to evaluate. And so the question uh, when you are doing something in faith is how do you know when you need to stop doing that and start doing something else, when you need to change or when it has failed, is there some rational way of determining that this thing you're doing has failed? And the answer seems to be no, there is no rational way to tell when it's failed. You just have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep believing and never doubting and keep doing it. Maybe today will be the day. Let's go up for prayer three times uh, every Sunday, uh, once on Wednesday while we're at it. Let's just keep doing it and keep doing it. Are you ever, are you ever as a Christian irrational for continuing to do the same thing? and getting the same result. And if this story is to be believed, if this version of God is to be believed, then no, you're only irrational if you ever stop. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll have uh, one or two more comments uh, when this is over. It'll be just a bit from here. That prayer gathers force that eventually, it's, it's like filling a reservoir that eventually breaches the dam of that problem in your life. So that every time I, as I think back on this, every time I was coming forward, I was adding weight to the prayer for my healing. Every how much weight does it take? I'm sorry, I, I really want to ask, how much weight do we need? How, how many prayers, how much, how much prayer poundage is there, is there a measurement for this? What the hell is this all about? <laughs> Please, someone explain to me uh, how prayer by the pound works. Every time I was coming forward, I, it was like putting a deposit in the bank that would ultimately give enough heft and breakthrough for that. And I always went home saying, I believe, who knows, God's going to hear me. Every, every Sunday, I'd go up and I'd say, who knows, this could be the day until one day it was the day.
Will he keep putting them off? What's the answer? No, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the question. Will people believe God enough to keep going to God to get what they need from God? That's the issue. Okay. Um, well, that's, uh, that's the issue. Uh, all right. Um, I'll be very brief here. During the telling of his story, and um, especially at the end where he says, you know, each time he would go up, he would, you know, tell himself, this, this is going to be the time. This is, this is going to be this one. Am I the only one who thought of Nabil Qureshi? Um, I, I couldn't get his, uh, face out of my mind during this preacher's story because Nabil Qureshi would be preaching the exact same sermon and telling the exact same story if he had lived. But he didn't. He didn't live. His faith was not answered. And he kept right on going to the end, kept right on going. Is this is this a disconfirmation of this sermon? I mean, I don't I don't know. How do how do preachers who preach these sermons and tell these stories deal with the Nabil Qureshis of the world, the, the Nabil Qureshis in their own church? Isn't there something just a little bit cruel, just a little bit inhumane? about standing in front of an audience of people who have lost loved ones in that very church. And you were telling them that if you had just been faithful, God would have saved them. It's on them. It's on you. Because look, God saved me. God saved me. You see, it worked for me. Should have worked for you. What did you do wrong? This is the insanity of healing ministries like uh, the one that John Lindell has. And the members of these churches have to deal with constant cognitive dissonance, nonstop. They're on their knees 24-7. They are praying all the time. They believe with all the capability that a human has to believe in a thing. And they move forth in faith as if they have already received. And they do not receive. And yet John Lindell struts his story about how God saved him for his great faith. Walk away, people. No, run away. And don't look back. Next week, 
Uh, we'll see. I've I've got one queued up. Uh, I've actually had it queued up for a few weeks, and I keep not doing it. And uh, so we'll see. It'll be something good. I'll see you in the comments. Bye-bye now.